every different topic that you could ever talk about or teach or meditate upon, I'd have to say that probably the love of God is probably one of the most misunderstood and misrepresented subjects of any subject there is in the Word of God. Too many times we water the love of God down. We don't understand that sometimes the love of God needs to be tough. Too many times we think that it's sloppy agape and it's greasy grace. But when you go into the Word of God, you find out that God says you obey me, you be blessed, you disobey me, you be cursed. That is the love of God. <laughs> now, look at what he says right here in Hebrews chapter 10 in verse 24. It says, and let us consider one another. Now, you know as well as I do that the Bible teaches that we're supposed to judge ourselves, doesn't it? We're supposed to judge ourselves. We have become proficient in judging everybody else, and we have become so afraid of judging other people that we think that it's a sin. And yet when Jesus was teaching on the portion of text that we've pulled out of context and made to try to say something that was never meant to say, over in Matthew chapter 7 where he says, Judge not, you won't be judged. He was not telling us that we shouldn't judge each other. He was just saying that before we judge each other, before we attempt, and he used an illustration that makes absolute total sense. And if we just meditate on the illustration, we'd get the point he was trying to deliver. But we don't meditate on the illustration. We just meditate on the statement that he made that is pulled out of context in our generation of <clears throat> backsliddenness and lukewarmness. And uh, we've made it say something it was never designed to say. But if we just meditate on the illustration, we would get the point Jesus was trying to deliver to us. He said, don't attempt to take a splinter out of your brother's eye before you go on ahead and get the four by four out of your own eye. Amen? Amen. Or you could say it this way, don't attempt to get the speck out of your brother's eye while you're walking around with a couple telephone poles protruding, pro protruding from your own eyes. Why? Because you aren't going to be able to see clearly to do the operation. I mean, you wouldn't go to a blind man and ask him to try to get something out of your eye. You're going to go to somebody who can see real, real good, aren't you? Have you ever got something in your eye before? I mean, it just harasses the living daylights out of you know you get it out. And if you can't get it out yourself, then you're going to make sure that you go to somebody that can see real, real good because you don't want just anybody messing around next to them eyes of yours, because you only get one pair, and you want them to last you, don't you? And so Jesus did not tell us that he didn't want us in a position where we could get the speck out of our brother's eye. 
He just said, make sure that before you do it, you can see clear so that when you operate on them, you're not going to end up doing more damage than you do good. Now, if you've ever had anything in your eyes, any foreign object, that's the only thing you can think about. I've given this illustration before, back when we used to do asphalt roofing. It's made up of these just millions and millions of little teeny tiny rocks, really not a lot bigger than a grain of sand, spread all over this, um, you know, this, th th these shingles. And every once in a while when you're laying them down, you know, if you get a wind blow up over the top of the roof or something like that, every once in a while, you, you'll find one of them, uh, them little teeny, I mean, it's a little teeny tiny stone. Real, 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 real small. Sometimes you find one of them getting underneath your eyelid. Every single time you blink your eye, it scratches the surface of your eye. And I don't, bless God, care who you are. That's all you're going to think about for the rest of the day until you get that thing out of your eye. And if it happens first thing in the morning, it's going to highly cut down on your productivity. Because that's all you can think about until you find somebody to get that out of your eye. Because every time you blink, you blink thousands of times over the course of a day. Every single time you blink with that little tiny rock underneath your eyelid, it just scratches the surface of your eye. And so, of course, that's the only thing you're going to think about. And you are greatly desirous of somebody getting that out of your eye. But you're going to go to somebody that you know can see real clear. And if they can't see clear, <laughs> you either aren't going to go to them, or you, uh, you aren't going to go to them, you're going to hunt for somebody else, or you're going to want to go on ahead and have to have them ensure you that they can do the job properly. Well, right here, the Word of God talks to us about something that you could say is likened unto going after that splinter that's in a brother's eye. Now, he says in the 24th verse of Hebrews chapter 10, and let us consider one another. Let us consider one another. One translation says, let us give attention and watch over one another. Let us consider, let us give attention and watch over one another. Let us consider one another. So that means pay attention to each other. Pay attention to each other. He said, and provoke. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good work. Now go on ahead, if you would, and highlight that word provoke right there. That word provoke comes from a Greek word that could actually be translated, let's bring each other, and you won't have to do this all the time. 
Every once in a while, though, you'll, you'll find the necessity of doing this. That word provoke means bring to the point of exasperation. In other words, you're going to have to exert enough influence over this person. And what they're doing at the time, we're going to talk about here in just a minute, about what type of scenario will we find it of necessity to provoke each other. Okay? But this word provoke means to invade that person so strongly, to invade their lifestyle, to invade what they find themselves involved in at the time, that it has an effect on their emotions. And really, you could translate it this way, that it brings that person to the point of exasperation. Now, go over to the book of Acts for a minute in uh, chapter 15. And I want to show you another place where the same Greek word that's translated provoke is also used, but it's translated a little bit different way, just to give you a better feel for that word and how it was used back in that day so that we can get a clearer picture on what the Spirit of God is trying to tell you and I when he says, let us consider one another and provoke one another on the love and good work. Now here in Hebrews, uh, in uh, Acts chapter 15 and verse 39. Actually, we'll, we'll stop back in verse 36 so you can get a picture of what's taking place here. And some days after Paul said unto Barnabas, let us go again and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they do. And Barnabas determined to take with them John, whose surname was Mark, but Paul thought not good to take him with them, who departed from them unto Pamphylia, and went not with them to the work. And the contention was so sharp between them that they departed asunder one from the other. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed unto Cyprus, and Paul chose Silas and departed, being re recommended by the brethren under the grace of God. So you could actually say that they came close to having a knockdown drag out. The contention, that's that same Hebrew word, uh, same Greek word found in Hebrews. The same Greek word in Hebrews 10.26 that is translated provoke is the same identical Greek word right here in Acts 15.39 that's translated contention. In other words, you could say there's a possibility at times when you do this that spikes are going to be flying. You know what the Bible says over in the book of Proverbs? It said that it implies very strongly that you need somebody in your life that's going to represent iron sharpening iron. And you want to know what happens when iron sharpens iron? Spikes fly. You want to know something? If we don't have somebody in our life that represents the iron that sharpens iron, then we're going to end up becoming dull in our pursuit of God. We're not going to remain like that sharp 
two-edged sword. We become dull in our pursuit of God. And every once in a while, bless God Almighty, when this provoking takes place, sparks can fly. But you want to know something? If we stay clothed with humility, and if we stay teachable, and we stay meek, even though when we're provoked, it may temporarily bring us to the point of exasperation where we get our religious feathers ruffled and we, get, uh, we, we might even get riled up in our flesh. Well, who do you think he is? Telling me that I need to do thus and so. And yet when we go on our way and get thinking about what was said, we'll go, hey, you know, they was right. I needed somebody to come along just slap some sense into me and let me know that maybe I'm walking down the wrong path here, that maybe I'm not doing everything that I should be doing. I better bless God get back on course here. Are you with me? Now, if we're going to acquire everything in God that God wants us to acquire in this backward, damnable, perverse generation that we're living in, and it is, I mean, Jesus himself said, as in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. He said, and just like it was in Lot's day, it's going to be just before Jesus comes back. In other words, the earth is going to be filled with perversion. And it is. I'll tell you, it's a sad day when you're driving down the road in a car and you look over at the person sitting in the vehicle next to you at the light and you can't tell whether they're a man or a woman. And I mean, you're looking right over at him going, you know, I can't honestly tell you whether that's a man or a woman. It's either a feminine-looking man or a real masculine-looking woman. And you can't tell. That's a sad day. But that happens more often than not. You look over and go, that's either a real kinky-looking guy or a real masculine-looking woman. We're living in a perverted day. We're living in a backward generation. And see, you need to understand that when you study scripture and you study history, the same bless God spirits that reign supreme over a city do everything that they can to creep into the church. Are you out there? I said, are you out there? Yeah. And we've got to be on God for that. We've got to bless God, be on God for that. And so we're going to find it of necessity to provoke one another once in a while. 
figuratively speaking now, come up and slap you upside the head once in a while. Say, hey, what in the snaking world are you doing, man? How come we ain't seen you in the past three prayer meetings? Oh, you know, I had things to do. Oh, you mean you're serving another God now? You mean you're doing what Jesus said can't be done, trying to serve God and mammon? We can see that it's real plain that you're loving the one and hating the other, or you're holding to the one and despising the other. You, you get one foot in the world and one foot in the church and can't decide which one you like better. Right. Are you out there? Yeah. I gave an illustration the other night when we were teaching here. I said, you know, if we told everybody last Sunday morning that if you'll be out there every single service that we have this week, at the end of the week, we keep attendance all week long, and you've come out all five nights, every single night, uh, a Saturday morning, you meet us right here at 9 o'clock in the morning, we'll write you out each a check for $1,000. My God, man, this place will be packed to capacity. Why? Because people are more in love with money than they are with God. And they see the temple reward is a far greater reward than they do the eternal one. They've got their sights on the temporary crown and the temporary wreath that they're running after. They've got a far higher sight on that than they do on the eternal things. You can't win the war with an army like that because they're double-minded. They've enlisted in the army of God, but they're still thinking like civilians. That'll get you killed in battle. Are you with me? So we're going to find it of necessity to provoke one another. Are you, are you still here? And it's the same word that right here in Acts 15.39 is translated contention. In other words, between Paul and Barnabas, and these guys were friends, man. I mean, they did a lot of work together. I believe it was Barnabas, wasn't it, that came down and sought Paul out. In um, Acts chapter 11, he, he searched him out and worked with him for a year in Antioch. And this was the first place that believers were known as Christians. It says right here in Acts chapter 11 and verse um, 25, then departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul. I mean, he searched him out. He hunted him down. These guys were like tight, man. These guys were like friends. And they got into it over this Mac fella. For, I mean, for whatever reason, Barnabas wanted Mac to come along. Paul said, no. He said, I don't think it's a good idea. I don't want him to come, man. They got right into it. And so Paul went on ahead and took Silas, and Barnabas took Mike, and they, they, they headed off in their own direction. Well, we're talking apostles here. I mean, you, don't, you would never think that that would happen between apostles. Why? Oh, an apostle is so spiritual, they never get into the flesh. Huh. Well, they got blessed God emotions just like everybody else. They got flesh to contend with just like everybody else. They get to put their underwear on the same way every morning. Are you with me? They're just as blessed God human as anybody is. 
And these old boys got into it, man. It said the contention was sharp between them. And that word contention paints a picture of the fact that uh, spikes were flying, man. They were getting into it. They were getting down. It's the same identical word translated provoke in Hebrews 10. I think I said 25 before, but I meant to say 24. Hebrews 10, 24. We're going to find this of necessity. Why? Because just like Jeremiah was saying in the first class, the pressure that's going to come against you and I to back off is going to be great. The harder you press into God, the greater the pressure comes to back off. Until the emotion of it becomes extreme. Now, let me, let me give you a natural illustration of what we're talking about here. I don't know if you've ever heard of this place or not before, but right off of the uh, Philippines, I believe it is, if I remember correctly, if I'm up on my geography, right off the coast of the Philippines, there's this place under the ocean that's called the Marianas Trench. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but that's what it looks like it's pronounced as, Marianas Trench. And it's a place... It's, it, it's the deepest spot in the ocean. You could take Mount Everest, which is over 29,000 feet, uh, 29, feet high, I believe, and you could drop that in the Marianas Trench and still have a mile of water above that mountain. That's deep. It's over, it's like 35 or 36,000 feet deep, something like that. It's just phenomenal. It's like seven miles plus straight down underwater. That's deep. If you took a submarine, and they've, they've got this certain type of submarine that they built, they can actually go down to the bottom of that thing. But the pressure that comes against the hull of that submarine, I mean, that thing has to be built with so many inches thick of steel or whatever they use. And then the glass in that thing has to be so many inches thick just to keep that thing from being crushed by the pressure of the water that's above that thing. And I'm sure if you've ever watched any um, war movies, uh, the submarines that they use in war can only go down just so far because the uh, thickness of the hull can only withstand so much pressure being brought against it. And then I'm, su I'm sure if you've ever watched any of those old, old war movies, sometimes if, if they get hit, or if their engines went out or something like that, and they ended up sinking to the bottom of the ocean, and they were in a place in the ocean where, uh, uh, say, like if, if that hull was only designed to go down 2,000 feet, and they happened to sink down to a place that was 3,000, 4,000 feet deep, then they're down there in almost pitch black darkness, 
except for emergency lighting, and you can hear that hull creaking and groaning and beginning to be crushed. Why? Because that hull isn't designed to withstand the pressure from the water that's above it. And so if you took one of those subs right there and tried to take that to the bottom of the Marianas Trench, it would just crush it because it's not created, it's not designed to handle that type of pressure. Well, it's the same blessed God way when you and I begin to progress into God. When you begin to press into God or, you know, like we say, punch into God or draw near to God, however you want to say it, all means the same thing then pressure is brought against you and I from Satan's kingdom. Why? Because he don't want you punching in. He don't want you pressing in. He doesn't want you drawing near to God. Why? Because he knows that God said that if you draw near to him, he's going to draw near to you. And the last thing the devil wants is for you to draw near to God so that God can draw near to you. The devil don't want God drawing near to you. Why? Because he wants to retain a hold over your life. And he doesn't want other people to see how much of God is available to anybody who draws near to him by your example. Because he knows that it'll set other people on fire. And, and it'll cause other people to want to draw near to God. And that's the last thing the devil wants. Do you think the devil wants other people to see how much of God is available if you just start drawing near to God and obtain more of God than you've ever had before? Or we could say that you've obtained more of God in your generation than almost anybody else that you know? Do you think the devil wants that being put on display in front of other people and causing that to whet their appetite and cause them to have a desire to obtain the same degree in God that you have? Do you think the devil wants that? No. So he's going to bring pressure against you to get you to back off. And it was just like uh, Jeremiah was saying in the first class, the chief way that he does that is through the religious system. Yeah. And one of the, let me see how can I say this now, one of the, uh, one of the favorite words of a backslider is balanced. You need to stay balanced in this thing. Well, what are we going to use as a measuring stick for that word balance? You know, what is your definition of balance? And can it be backed up with Scripture? I like that point that was brought out that uh, I think it was Jeremiah's quote in Lesser Summerall said, if you want a picture of what God wants the church to look like, read the book of Acts. Why do you think the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to write the book of Acts? Because God wanted us to have a picture of what He wants the church to always look like. 
See, the book of Acts is our example of what God wants the church to always look like. And so when you compare the book of Acts with what we've got today in North America, it's so far separate from each other. If, if it was possible, it'd make you sick to your stomach. There is no comparison. None whatsoever. And I like what one minister friend of mine said one time. He said, if we're going to have what we don't have, then we're going to have to be willing to do what we're not doing. And the first thing we're going to have to rid ourselves of is the luxury of excuses. We want to hold on to our excuses. And why we can't do this. And why we can't do that. And why we can't do this. And why we can't do that. Well, as long as we hold on to those excuses that we consider such a great luxury that protect us in our backslidden state of mind, then we can't ever righteously expect to have what they had in the book of Acts. We'll never have it until we're willing to do what they did. And I, I, I so do enjoy those things that Jeremiah brought out, those ten things that uh, uh, the book of Acts considers as normal Christianity, which is so abnormal today, it's pathetic. There is no comparison. They didn't consider it a great thing to meet together every day. They didn't consider it something out of the ordinary. But today, we call that extremism. They didn't consider it out of the ordinary to get together and pray every day. They didn't consider it out of the ordinary to get together and hear the Word of God taught and preached every day. They didn't consider that out of the ordinary. To them, that was a normal part of Christianity. Today, it's classified in North America as extremism. And see, backsliders, favorite word is, you need to stay balanced in this thing. Well, what are you using as a definition of balance? What the church looks like as a whole in North America? Well, I didn't know that the gospel was written according to the North American church. It was written according to the mind of the Spirit by the men that were personally influenced by Jesus. And they got together daily. My God, you ask people to get together two or three times a week. And the type of reaction you get out of most of them, you'd think that you'd ask them to cut their right arm off and put it in the offering plate. Well, you want to know something? Just stop and think about this for a minute. I was reading some time ago, I should have blessed God and cut the article out and kept it. They said that the average person in North America watches about four and a half hours of TV every day. Now, if people in your churches 
born-again believers fit within those statistics of watching about four and a half hours of TV every single day, what would happen if they shut that TV off and if they can't control when they turn it on, shut it off, put a baseball bat through it or sell it and put the money in the offering? What would happen if they took that four and a half hours that they spent being evangelized and discipled by the world system? Yeah, I watch Christian TV. 95% of it is unbelief and doubt and man-made tradition which makes the Word of God an unaffected. What would happen if they took that four and a half hours a day and spent that time praying and meditating the Word of God and doing work for God? Within one year, we wouldn't recognize either one of our nations. We wouldn't even recognize them. Why? Because the church would get on fire again. What would happen if they took that four and a half hours every day and said, let's start assembling ourselves together and, and taking a, a, an hour or two of that time and praying, take an hour or two of that time and listening to the Word of God being taught and preached by vessels that God has ordained to accomplish that task in the church, that are anointed to do that very thing so that our faith can grow exceedingly. But see, it would be, it would be labeled as extremists. but not according to the book of Acts. You know what? I think we ought to bless God and start making our decisions based upon what the book of Acts has to say instead of what some idiot has to say. Who bless God cares what they say. I think we need to start provoking people and saying, hey, this perverted type of thinking that you're trying to influence me with that you're trying to sway me with, that you're trying to water my fervency down with and cause me to become as lukewarm and half-hearted in my pursuit of God as you are, can you show it to me in the Word of God? Can you back it up with the example that the church and the book of Acts lives by? If you can't, then we can't accept it. If you can't, then we will reject it as being thinking that has been adopted by the world system. Yeah. You, you adopted it. It came out of the world system. It's thinking that prevails in the sky over the city you live in, and it's crept into your life, into your mind, into your church, affected your behavior, watered down your pursuit of God, stolen your fervency, cause you to become lukewarm and half-hearted. And if we allow that to affect us, then another generation will die and never see the fullness of what God has made available unto mankind in any generation to any people who's willing to pay the price to go after these things and not consider the opinions of people who are backslidden.
So you're going to have to stop provoking people. Now, that doesn't mean you walk around, you know, with a badge on thinking you're the chief of police of the body of Christ. No, this type of provoking right here won't do any good unless you're prompted or led by the Spirit or you have an unction by the Holy One to do that. If you're not led by the Spirit to do it, you don't have an unction by the Holy Ghost to do it, then the only thing you're going to do is uh, stir up a lot of strife. Yeah. See, it ain't going to do any good to provoke somebody who's clothed themselves with pride. It ain't going to hit you. Uh, just for a minute, l let me show you what I'm talking about. Go to the book of Proverbs. I've got to find it real quick here. Uh, Proverbs chapter 9. Proverbs chapter 9. See, when, when it comes to this provoking that we're talking about here, you're going to have to be led by the Spirit. You're going to have, an, you're gonna have to have an unction by the Holy One, an inward witness or an inward prompting. And this type of provoking right here will do absolutely no good if you don't have a voice in that person's life. because they won't receive it. See, the first thing that you need to ask yourself uh, before you provoke somebody is, do I have a voice in that person's life? Do I have any influence in their life whatsoever? And, and if you don't, it ain't going to accomplish nothing. The only thing it's going to do is stir up strife. See? That's why, I mean, you can see all kinds of people that you'd like to provoke, but wisdom dictate you're not even approach it because they won't receive it from you. Now in Proverbs chapter 9, look at what he says in verse 7. I'm going to read it to you out of some different translations. In the King James it says, He that reproveth a scorner getteth to himself shame. And he that rebuketh a wicked man getteth himself a blot. Or you could say, in light of what we're talking about uh, right now, he that attempteth to provoke somebody when you don't have a voice in their life, going to bring you shame and might get you a blot. <laughs> well, that blot might end up manifesting itself in the form of a black eye. <laughs> One translation says, he that correcteth the scoffer getteth to himself reviling. He that rebuketh a scoffer getteth to himself contempt. He that corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse. Now listen to this. He who corrects an arrogant man will be insulted. Uh, he that corrects a mocker makes himself an enemy. See, you need to be led by the Spirit when you do this type of thing. You need to stay sensitive of the Holy Ghost. And if He's not leading you to do it, then just keep your mouth shut. But if you get a voice in that person's life, then bless God Almighty, and you see them walking down the wrong path, you need to use that voice to, to snatch them off that wrong path and get them back on the right path. Are you with me? 
Now go back over there to Hebrews chapter 10. See, let me, I want to show you the context of when the Spirit of God deemed it of necessity that we provoke people. You know, I mean, we might think, well, I ought to provoke them for this, not to provoke them that, I ought to provoke them for this, provoke them for that. And, and, and that might be just your idea, that might be just your opinion. But let's look at the context of when the Spirit of God deems it of necessity that we provoke somebody, that we possibly end up bringing them to the point of exasperation until we've spoken words that are so strong that, in, it, that, that it invades them and may possibly get an emotional reaction out of them. Look at what it says in verse 25. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. So when you see people that are forsaking the assembling of themselves together, he said, this is a point that they need to be provoked over. Where were you? And they go down through their long list of excuses. He said, this is a point you need to provoke people over. Just reading through you out of the Bible. I mean, is it in there or ain't it? Let us consider one another and provoke, bring to the point of exasperation, invade their mind with strong words, snap them off the path they've been walking down and get them back onto the right path. You may, you may just go on ahead and find it a necessity. Ask them, do you want what's in the book of Acts? Oh, yeah, like, like Jeremiah was saying, do you want revival? Oh, yeah, yeah, we want it. Well, then, where were you? Oh, I was doing my own thing. Well, see, that's the problem with the church today. We're all doing our own thing. We're not doing what? We're not doing God's thing. We're all doing, uh, uh, that's the problem. We're all doing our own thing. And more times than not, our own thing revolves around running after money and things. Yes, we need a job. Yes, the Bible says if a man doesn't work, he ought not eat. But it's very, very easy for the devil to yank somebody off of that road and cause them to begin loving money and loving things and coveting after pleasure and abandoning the house of God and the work of God and becoming a lover of pleasure more than a lover of God and being satisfied with having a form of godliness while they deny the lifestyle that brings the power of God.
He's still here. So he says, you want to know when you need to provoke somebody? When you find them forsaking the assembling of themselves together. Where were you? Well, you know, I mean, I find it a necessity to work 16 hours a day. Oh, in other words, God is no longer your provider. You're running after everything that you need in your own strength, in your own power, in your own might. You've abandoned the house of God. You've abandoned the work of God. And now money has become your God. Do you know that they had to work in the book of Acts? Did you know that they had families to feed in the book of Acts? Did you know that they had revelation in the book of Acts that if you don't provide for your own household, you're worse than an unbeliever? And yet, they could do that and still meet daily to hear the Word of God and to pray. They could still do that. Because they did. Are you out there? So you see people today forsaking the assembling of themselves together. Notice, as the manna of some is. And it's those people right there that corrupt other people's fervency. Ha! Oh, what do you mean you're going to church every night during the week? What, what in the world are you into anyway? That sounds cultish to me. Well, you'd have thought the church in the book of Acts was a cult then too. You'd have thought Jesus was the leader of a cult then too. What are we going to measure balance by? Your pathetic, watered-down, lukewarm, half-hearted, backslid mentality or what Scripture says? I'm going to base balance upon the book of Acts. That is balance. That is what God considers normalcy. And I like it. Glory to God Almighty. And see, the only problem is, though, is when you begin to adopt that lifestyle, it convicts the backslider. It convicts the lukewarm. It convicts the half-hearted. It convicts those who are no longer fervent and white-hot in their pursuit of God, and they feel it a compulsion to attack your lifestyle. Why? Because your lifestyle convicts them in their lukewarm, half-hearted, lackadaisical, backslid mentality. It convicts them. And they feel it of necessity to attack you because of it. Oh, we need to bless God, rise up, and not be so easily intimidated by these backsliders. Amen? Hallelujah. Just tell them, hey, you're a filthy backslid. 
That's all there is to it. You're, you're almost as backslid as a devil is. And just walk away. Just walk away. Yeah. I'm sorry, but I can't associate with you no more because I don't want none of that junk you're fellowshipping with getting off on me and watering me down. I mean, I've having, I haven't enough of blessed God time contending with my own flesh, let alone contending with the pollution that's emanating from you. I mean, my flesh going to give me enough to run for my money, let alone surround myself with a bunch of corrupt associations who are all lukewarm, half-hearted and watered down in their pursuit of God. No, for most of those people right there, the, uh, 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 Christianity is an addendum. It's an add-on. Jesus is not Lord of their life. He's not number one. He's not the center of everything that they do, the center of everything that they say, the center of everything that they think, the center of their thoughts, deeds, and actions. He's an add-on. And that's why when sickness comes, they find it a necessity to run to the doctor because they haven't fellowshipped with the great physician who lives in them. They're not in a position for him to be able to show himself strong on their behalf because they don't know him. And when financial adversity comes to them, they have to run to the banker because they aren't in fellowship with El Shaddai, the God who's much more than enough, who lives on the inside of them, who is an alien to them, who is foreign to them because they don't fellowship with him. They, they don't know him. And so they're always reverting to the arm of the flesh. When are we going to find it of necessity to provoke people? When we see them forsaking the assembling of themselves together with other believers. As the manner of some is. You know, in our church a few weeks ago, when we were in the other building, I told some of the, it was on a Sunday morning. I remember it quite clearly. I told some of the, we had a bunch of brand new people in the church that had just gotten born again. I said, I, I'm going to tell this is for all you new people. I said, don't take the example of every person that comes to this church as what it's, uh, uh, what it's supposed to be like to be a Christian. I said, because uh, half of our church is full of poor examples. You know, that went over like a lead balloon. But it's true. It's true. Yeah. Hallelujah to Jesus. I mean, can, uh, what, what, what does it speak? What does it speak to somebody that you just get born again and you tell them how important Jesus is and how much he's a part of your life and then they come to a church service and you're at home? Well, where were you? Oh, well, you know, I mean... And, and you start indoctrinating them to all the excuses you've adopted. Well, see, you're teaching them by your lousy example. And you're putting their fire out. And your unfaithfulness 
will corrupt their fervency. And that's why the church is in the lukewarm condition that it is today. Is because anybody who is brand new is surrounded by too many lousy examples. They start out on fire for God, but it isn't long before that fire is put out by a bunch of wet blankets, by a bunch of lukewarms, half-hearted. Anything less than white hot in their fervency toward the things of God. And, they, and, and so that newborn believer looks at them and goes, oh, well, you know, I mean, they've been born again a whole lot longer than I have. If they don't find it a necessity to go to church as often as somebody else, uh, uh, you know, says that I ought to, then, I mean, you know, maybe, maybe this is the way that it's supposed to be. And you've duplicated your corruption in them. And then the whole church is corrupt. We need, to, we need to stem the tide of that. And we need to let people know, no, that is wrong. That is a wrong way of thinking. Shut that stinking TV off and come to church. Stop being discipled by the world system. Stop being evangelized by Hollywood. Come to church. When this church meeting is going on. If they found it a necessity to meet daily. To accomplish the work of God in the earth. Then why should we think otherwise? I'll tell you why we think otherwise. It's because our mind has been corrupted by the world system. Our Fervency in God is being crushed by the pressure that's brought against us by Satan's kingdom and poor examples in the body of Christ. Now look at what he says right here. He said, exalt one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. Well, if they blessed God met daily in the book of Acts, and he said, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, but you should get together more and more as you see Jesus come back. Bless God. Uh, 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 that absolutely leaves out anything other than daily. That leaves everything else out. Everything else is out of the question. Now, you've either got to believe that the Spirit of God wrote this or that it's just a bunch of hogwash. Well, I mean, maybe, maybe he didn't really mean that. Maybe that's just your opinion of what it's saying. The justifications of the backslider are many. Now let's go on a little bit further in this same chapter. He didn't stop there. He didn't stop there. Go on down just for the sake of time. Look at what it says in verse 35. It says, Cast not away therefore your confidence, or you could say your faith, which has great recompense of reward. For you have need of patience. You have need of endurance. You have need of perseverance that after you have done the will of God. 
after you have done the will of God, you might receive the promise. See, the only problem is today we want to receive all the promises of God and we don't want to have to do the will of God. I want God's best, but I don't want to have to live the lifestyle that promotes His best. I want God's best, but I don't want to have to live the lifestyle that qualifies me for His best. I want, I want God's best, but I don't want to have to pay for it. No, you want God's best, you're going to have to pay for it. If you want the best in the world, you've got to pay for it. Now look. He says in verse 27, For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. In other words, bless God Almighty, you stay in there, and the one that you're seeking, and the one that you're searching out, and the one that you're pursuing, though he tarry, he ain't going to tarry forever. One day, he's going to show up in your prayer closet and tap you on the shoulder and say, Am I the one you've been looking for? Then your life will never be the same. And that's the day the devil's after. That's the day he wants to make sure you never experience. That's the moment in time he wants to make sure that you never taste of. He's after that day. So, in order to make sure that that day never takes place, he has to talk you out of all the actions that would ensure that that day take place. He has to talk you out of coming to church. He has to talk you out of assembling together. He has to talk you out of your prayer life. He has to talk you out of studying and meditating the Word of God to ensure that that day never take place. Because God only promised that he would show up and show himself strong on behalf of those who were seeking them with their whole heart, whole soul, whole mind, and all their strength. He didn't say anything. He didn't give any promises about showing up to the lukewarm, to the backslid, to the half-hearted. That's why some have been born again for 20 years and still have no anointing. And somebody else can be born again for only five years and have a powerful anointing upon them. Why? Because they weren't talked out of pursuing God wholeheartedly. And the religious system got a hold of that other person and told them, you need to stay balanced in this thing. And that Balance cost them their anointing. That balance cost them never being able to finish their course of joy because they don't even know what that course is because they never sought God long enough to find out what God wanted them to do. And even if they did find out what He wanted them to do, they never were enabled or empowered for that task because they never stayed in there long enough to receive it. Because they found it a necessity to stay balanced. Well, what are you basing that word balance on? Are you basing it on the lifestyle of the early church? Or are you basing it on the lifestyle of modern day Christianity in North America? You know, there's a lot of churches that even 30 years ago used to meet Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night, and had a prayer meeting in the week. 
and now all they do is meet on Sunday morning. And back then, their services used to go three, three and a half, sometimes four hours. Sometimes they'd go all the way through the morning and the afternoon on into the night. And now they start looking at their watch when the pastor has preached for more than ten minutes, thinking, when is he going to let us out of here? We've got to go minister to the God of our belly. Wouldn't even dawn on them that maybe they should fast once in a while. Look at what has happened to the church. Look at what has happened to the church. We don't base our thinking, our actions, our deeds, and our behavior anymore on what the Word says. We base it on what is considered by the world system and what is considered by a backslid church as normal. And my God, man, God forbid that we have other people talking ugly about us. God forbid that we're labeled as extremists or cultists. And we can't have that now. We need to fit in. We find it of necessity that all men speak well of us. And we love the praises of men more than we love the praises of God. So in order for that to transpire, we're going to find it of necessity to have to obey men in what they consider as normal, in what they consider as balance. And then your fervency for God is out the window. And that's why we don't have nothing today. That's why we don't have any anointings that change any people's lives forever. They look at you and laugh. They look at you and mock. They look at you and scorn. You ain't got nothing. And they're right. Because we have to be normal. It was never a normal person that spawned revival. They were always considered extremists in their day. They were always considered as unbalanced in their day, according to modern Christianity in their day. They went totally, completely, absolutely cross-grained to what was considered normal in that day. And for those whose hearts had not become so hardened that they could still recognize the voice of the Spirit of God speaking through a man, it started setting other people on fire. And it started catching on. And other people started saying, Hey, look at what he has obtained. And they compared that with what everybody else considered as normal. They said, I don't want this that's considered normal anymore because it isn't doing anybody any good. There's no change that's being promoted. But this person is promoting change. There's something in their words that changes me when I listen to them. I don't fall asleep. Because the words are dead and lifeless, idle, chatter. There's something in those words. It's the Holy Ghost. 
There's something in those words that convicts me. There's something in those words that represent flaming arrows going into my heart and into my mind and causing me to have a desire to change. See, Jesus had that in his words. Because they, people that had been in the temple all their life, they got in on just one sermon by Jesus, and they, and they walked away saying, Never have we heard a man speak such as he. For with authority, his words are filled with power. And he speaks not as the scribes do. We can listen to them day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, and we have no desire to change because their words are dead, empty, lifeless, chatter. But his words, they're full of power. They bring conviction. They promote a desire for me to change the direction I'm walking in. I'm going to follow that man. And I'm going to find out what he's got. Now look at what it says in verse 38. Now the just shall live by faith. It takes faith to pursue God. It takes faith to pray all night long. It takes faith to give when you ain't got hardly nothing. It takes faith to tell your boss, I'm going to church. He says, well, I'll fight you. Oh, good, I'll get another job. I'm going to church. See, it takes faith to do those things. That means we're relying upon God. It means we're putting him first in our lives. He's no longer going to be an addendum. He's no longer going to be a a convenient add-on. Now look at this. But if any man, any man, draw back, see, we've all done that. We draw back. Especially, you get somebody that comes to you, and you're on fire for God, and they come to you and say, ho, 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 whoa, 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 whoa. I mean, you don't have to go to church five times during the week. My God, man, what are you caught up into anyway? Cold! And they put your fire out. He said, to the man who draws back, or you could say, to so the man who backs off. You've backed off, I've backed off, we've all backed off. When some well-meaning idiot comes up and confronts you because of your fervency. When some well-meaning, religiously educated fool feels it their divine compulsion to come up and attack your fervency for God. Because it convicts them of their sin. It convicts them of their backslidden condition. It convicts them of their lukewarmness. 
And so in order to solve the problem, they must either change or they must change you. And so because they have no desire to change, because that lifestyle is, condu is conducive with flesh, which they're living by, then they must change you. And the problem is, we let them. Because we give fools like that a voice in our life. You need to cut people like that off. Turn them off like a bad TV program. Why? Because those words will affect you. They'll set up a warfare in your life against your fervency for God. And those words that they speak, those prophetically, demonically inspired utterances will attack you in your prayer time, will attack you in your Bible study time. They'll attack you. They'll affect your behavior. They'll affect your outlook on perseverance. Let that happen to me. People come in demonically inspired prophetic utterance. Tell you, you're extreme. And you start giving heed and lending an ear to that. And there's only one problem. When you compare what your life evolves into, when you give heed to that smart versus what your life was like when you were on fire before God, before you gave heed and lent an ear into that stuff, the fruit should testify which path brings the greatest reward. And that's when you need somebody to come along and provoke you to get back on course. To provoke you to get back on the right path. And begin reigniting the flame of your fervency for God. He said, my soul has no pleasure in the person that draws back. And you know what happens to the person that draws back? To the person who backs off and they walk with God, he says in verse 39, he said the end of that person is perdition or destruction. Why? Because just like Jeremiah said in the first class, the minute you begin backing off, the minute you begin easing off, you have given Satan place. Why do you think he said the kingdom of heaven suffers violence? And it's the violent that take it by force. There is no passivity in violence. There is no lukewarmness in violence. There is no half-heartedness in violence. There is no lukewarmness in violence. Violence is passionate. Violence is wholehearted. Violence is accomplished with 
all your strength, with all your mind, and with all your soul. And he said, those are the ones who obtain the kingdom of heaven. He said, it's the violent that take the kingdom of heaven by force. And see, we let fools and lukewarm people steal our violence for the things of God. And we can't do that no more. We need to stop provoking each other when we see each other backing off. When we see each other not coming to church when there's church meetings. Yeah. Amen? Yeah. Let's stand. We're out of time. If you have to bless God, get right in their face. Where were you, you backslidden whoremonger? What do you mean, a whoremonger? You're fornicating with the world system. You're in love with the world system. Trying to, trying to serve God and you're in love with money and things. Well, money and things aren't going to give you what satisfies you. Amen. Father, we bless and magnify your holy name. And we thank you for your holy precious written word. Father, we desire that we not only be baptized with the Holy Ghost, but that we, we, that, but that we be baptized with fire. And that that fire would set other people on fire. And we thank you and praise you for it in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.